Luke chapter 2, the first 20 verses. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenus was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary, and Joseph, and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which are told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word here, and thank you so much in particular for the incarnation of Christ when God manifested himself in flesh and came to take and pay for the sins of his people. We pray thee, Lord, that you will open this unto us, that we might glorify thee and worship thee and have thankful hearts towards thee. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to cover just kind of a smattering of things because there's so much in here in the scriptures. We've read from Matthew and we've read from Luke, and there are other sections in this, uh, in here in Luke uh, and Matthew that which speak also about the birth of Christ. So I want to talk about Christian con- um, Christmas kind of in general, and then I want to zero down because I find it interesting when Jesus was born, and I know that the world doesn't appreciate the, uh, when he was actually born. We celebrated on, you know, um, December 25th. Um, but there's significance in everything that God has put in the Scripture, and we're going to find some uh, things interesting about that too, uh, Lord willing, um, when we talk about them, when we get there. Um, as is typical, um, I don't do a lot of work for Christmas. Most of it falls on my wife to take care of everything. So while I was at work this past week, people, you know, making conversation and acknowledging the season would ask me if I'm ready for Christmas. And I was honest with them this year. <laughs> Rather than saying no or yes or that I've been done this or that, I simply said, well, you know, the, to be honest with you, I don't do anything. My wife does everything. So I am ready because all I do is show up. And I am simply the recipient of my wife's labors. 
what gifts I receive. She has purchased, and she has wrapped, and she has placed under the tree, and then she gives them to me on a certain date. And so that's, I'm being honest with people now when they um, talk about those kinds of things. And so, but what I want to appreciate is there is the gospel in this as well. That from my perspective, in a nutshell, this is really what Christmas is all about. It's a celebration that revolves around the incarnation of God when God manifested himself in flesh that he might give the gift of eternal life, the gift of his son, Jesus, who is the Christ, who is one with the Father, to people who don't deserve it and didn't have anything to do with the preparation of the gift. So it is all a work of God. It is a gift that was purchased by God, the price of which was his own blood. It is a gift that neither I nor anyone labored for in any way. It is a gift that I did not request. I did not desire it. And initially, I did not esteem it. It is a gift that I could neither receive nor would receive in my own strength. As with Christmas gifts, somebody usually reaches under the tree, picks it up, and hands it to me. It's got my name on it, not unlike having your name written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And this is what the Lord says in John chapter 1, verse 12, with respect to handing us the gift. The gift that he gave me, that I would have the power to become the Son of God, is a gift that he gave me. He gave me the power that I would become a son, smallest son of God. Had he not done that very thing, I would never have received the gift. I would have not had the strength to receive the gift of eternal life. The gift of Christ is a most precious gift. It is a gift that is wrapped in flesh so that I could not behold his glory until God through his spirit revealed it unto me. And this we do, of course, we wrap gifts, place them under the tree. You can't see what it is. God clothed himself with uh, uh, the likeness of men. We could not see his glory. We could not behold it for what it was without the revelation of the Holy um, Spirit. Um, Had he not revealed to me what the gift of Christ was, I would have rejected it because that is what men do with the gospel. They reject it. Absent the revelation of God, men reject the gospel and they reject their Savior. And in a spiritual context, that's what we see Joseph, the husband of Mary, doing. What did he do when he found that she was pregnant with the Savior of the world? Well, he thought privily to put her away. And in so doing, what was he doing in a spiritual context? He's rejecting the gospel, and he's rejecting the Savior that comes with the gospel. And that's generally what the world does. When they bring the gospel, they reject you, because they reject the one who sent you. They don't want any part of what you have to say, and they don't want any part of the Savior that we bring with us through the preaching of the gospel. And so that is what Joseph sought to do. Now, I'm going to contrast Joseph for a moment here with Mary, who, as presented to us here in Scripture, is the epitome of the example of regeneration, somebody that receives the gospel. When the angel Gabriel came and told her that um, she would, was pregnant uh, by the Holy Spirit, she receives it with simple faith. And she asks the question in verse 34 of Luke chapter 1, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? In other words, how am I going to be pregnant, seeing that I know not a man? And I appreciate that. And we know that that's always um, compared with Zacharias, the husband of Elizabeth, 
he and his wife were well stricken in age, and the same angel came to him and said, your wife is going to be pregnant, and his saying wasn't, how's this going to happen? I think he had an inkling how it would happen, but he didn't believe him, and he said, well, how shall I know that this shall be? Whereby shall I know this? Well, how about if you go home and your wife gets pregnant? That's how you'll know that what I said is true. Very simple, because I know you've been um, endeavoring to have a child for many years. You're both well stricken in age, so when your wife gets pregnant then um, you will know that what I said was true. But for our benefit, of course, he was made so that he could not speak. And why I say that is for our benefit, because we can appreciate that after the angel Gabriel visited him, as soon as he got home, his wife became pregnant, and so there was a little, if any, lapse in time. And why is that significant? Because it's going to have to do with helping us figure out when uh, Jesus was born. Because Jesus was born six months after John the Baptist was born. So obviously... Uh, Zacharias was not mute for a very long period of time, just for the duration of the pregnancy. And so that's for our benefit. But nevertheless, getting back to Mary here, what I want us to appreciate is that it was, she had demonstrated um, a simple faith that that she received what the angel said was true, and that is in fact the gospel. Um, She also acknowledges her need for a savior and the things that that she says here in terms of uh, her conversation with Elizabeth. She speaks about um, how um, Christ is her savior and she speaks about her um, low estate. That's in verse 48 here. In verse 46 through 48 of Luke chapter 1, and Mary said, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my savior. She recognizes that God is her savior. She recognizes that she's in need of a savior. And in verse 48, she said, For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaid. The word low estate there is a Greek word which means sinful nature. It's actually translated in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21 as vile, or vile flesh. So she recognizes the condition of herself and so much as that she needs a Savior. Luke chapter 2, verse 22, she does what is required of the law because she's unclean and she makes an offering at the temple. Now, why is that significant? Because that is the truth. For all Christians, acknowledgement of a Savior, which um, is a, an appreciation for who Christ is, as well as that you are a sinner and need of, uh, in, in need of salvation. And so she says that she'll be called blessed, and that's a true statement of all Christians, because all Christians in whom Christ dwells are blessed indeed, because there is no other means and agency of salvation except Christ be in you. And Romans um, I think it might be chapter 8 where it says, unless the Spirit of Christ be in you, you are none of his. Christ must be in you. So what takes place with Mary is the same thing that takes place with respect to all Christians. Christ must be in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And so she typifies the church and the blessing which comes upon all Christians in whom Christ dwells. So we see her uh, as an epitome of of the church. And we contrast that with the way other people receive uh, the gospel. Um, But again, getting back to my uh, simple analogy here of uh, the custom of exchanging gifts and its loose parallel with salvation, um, we also should appreciate with respect to this custom that we do not exchange gifts with God. We are simply the recipients of the gift of eternal life through his son Christ. We are his purchased possession for we have been bought with a price and we are not our own. And the price of our, uh, that gift, of course, was the cost of the life of the Son of God, the cost of His Son. So, um, 
consistent with these interesting things that we do on Christmas, you know, you can look it up, I'm sure, why people decided they needed to cut down a tree and put it in their living room and put lights on it. It's a strange thing to do, but is it not consistent with the gospel? Um, We'll cut down a tree and we'll place it in our living rooms. We'll put it underneath the tree as to be contrasted with the gift that God gave us. He placed it not under the tree, but he put it on the tree. And indeed, he nailed it to the tree when he, by his determinate counsel and foreknowledge, through the wicked hands of men, was crucified and slain. So there's some interesting contrasts and parallels with respect to the traditions that we do. If we meditate on them and think upon them, I think they glorify God and they point to him um, in an indirect, if not a direct way. Now, I would say of Christmas that it's probably the most heard of day or season on the planet. It's certainly not the most understood or necessarily the most observed, that I don't know, but I would say that in terms of its broadest global association, probably more people have heard of Christmas than anything else. If you've heard of Christmas, then the name Christ is appended to it and certainly Jesus associated with that because there is nobody else who's ever been uh, thought to be Christ or been pointed to as the Christ than Jesus himself. And that's certainly a most extraordinary claim. And that is interesting because I think almost everybody on the planet has heard of the name of Jesus. And what they do with that name has, certainly has eternal um, implications and impact on their life. Now, this year, our family decided that we would give uh, no gifts, although not everybody abided by that, but I appreciate that because what that allowed us to do is almost every year, Uh, We have an emotional meltdown in the house because of all the stress associated with Christmas. There's just a lot of things that fall upon the women uh, to do, and it can be very stressful. And this year, um, we ramped that down a bit, and the benefit of that was that we could think more about Christ this year. And uh, that certainly has its very tangible benefits in terms of your... um, the uh, internal anxiety and and angst that you may have, um, that being replaced by by peace, that we could meditate and would meditate upon the manifestation of God in the flesh. Um, Why he did it and what did he accomplish when he did it? And as you heard from the preamble of that hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, if you read through the lyrics on that, and I would encourage you to do so, you can take out that handout. We've talked about the differences in it. That is a theologically rich hymn, speaking about so many things that uh, God did when he manifested himself in the flesh, taking away sin, reconciling God to man, imputing his, his um, uh, nature to us in terms that we are partakers of the divine nature, you know, um, the, uh, conforming us to the image of Christ. So much is in that, that hymn, and it's so rich with spiritual truths. Um, I find it remarkable um, that many years ago, you remember the Peanuts uh, Christmas uh, special, they sang that hymn during that um, cartoon, and they read from Luke chapter 2. I couldn't fathom that happening this day, but it was remarkable. I remember to this day that that hymn from there as well as singing it um, in church. So anyway, getting back to what the scripture has to say about um, the birth of Christ, God has done so many things to help us appreciate who he is and what he has done and that he came exactly in accordance with the scriptures when he was going to come 
Um, it's quite remarkable. He teaches us through the literal written word, and he teaches us through geography, he teaches us through timing, he teaches us through the political events, truths that relate to him. I mentioned some of this last year, but it's always interesting to review them, that he would come to Bethlehem, which means house of bread. He's the uh, manna from heaven. Where did his mother place him? Where did his parents place him after the birth? Well, they placed him in a manger, which is a feeding trough. And, of course, where would you put he with, from whom we feed? You'd put him in a feeding trough. We ought to be able to appreciate that. And where was he born? Well, all we know is there was no room in the inn, so he was not born in an inn. But if you read about it, some people will say he was born in a stable where animals were kept. Some will say that he was born in a cave. They don't really know, but I would say he was born in a stable. And there's a reason for that, not just because there were animals there, but because of his birth date. Now, if you do the math on his birth date, and the Lord sets it for us here in Luke chapter 1 when it talks about um, when uh, Zacharias was working in the temple, it tells when he was in there. So you know when the angel came to visit him. You know when he went home. You know when he got pregnant. You know that uh, the gestation of a human is 40 weeks, and then Jesus was born six months later. You can work it all out. He was born on, most likely, on Tish the 16th, which is the seventh month of the Jewish calendar. That coincides with our October 10th. Now, why is that significant? It's during the Feast of Tabernacles. <laughs> Jesus ever kept the law, so even at his birth, here he is in a tabernacle. Now, so here he is coming and being in a tabernacle, keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. So what makes this interesting is that there are three feasts during the year when the males are to present themselves before the Lord. So we have, respecting God's calendar, his manifestation in flesh, closely associated with the Day of Atonement, and probably coincidental with the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Ingathering. Now, we have Caesar here, who is a type of God. In this context, he's taking a census for the purpose of taxation. So we have during the Feast of Ingathering, spiritually speaking here, the Lord is setting up this for us. How many people are going to be in the house of God or the house of Jacob? We'll see that in a minute here. And what is it going to cost to gather them in? There's, a syn there's synonyms here in the scripture, house of God, house of David, and the house of Jacob. So Caesar is a type of God, is taking his census for the purpose of taxation. How many people are going to come in during the ingathering, and what is it going to cost God to gather them in? So we can appreciate all of the things that the Lord sets before us here, and we can also appreciate the sobriety with which we are to consider these things, because the Bible does exhort us to be sober-minded. We read in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, that the Lord says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. And the, reason, the word reason here is in the context of a legal argument that would take place in court. Um, people take their positions and they argue a case. And so the Lord is saying to national Israel, Come now, let us reason together. Though our sins be, though our sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So considering the nature of man, do our depravity is uh, more easily to see in somebody else. If you want to see the depravity of men, first thing you need to do is take all of the mirrors out of your house because you'll see it in other people before you'll see it in yourself. And the fact that you don't see it in yourself as easily is because of your depravity. So anyway, the Lord sets before them here, because of their depravity, your sins are as scarlet and as crimson. Nevertheless, 
Because of the work of Christ, because of the work of God, they shall be white as snow or as wool. And so it is God's manifestation in flesh, the anniversary of which we celebrate on Christmas, where God set aside his glory, made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant, and made himself in the likeness of men, and he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, that he might wash our sins and redeem us unto God through the blood of Christ. And if you work through that, that is a very rational process for us to uh, appreciate. Now, this is a process that the Lord speaks about in other areas about building a house for himself. This is part of the process of building a house for himself. Now, Luke chapter 1, verse 32, I'm going to look at verse 32 and 33 because I find them very interesting in the context of when the Lord was born. In verse 32 of Luke chapter 1, he says, speaking of Christ, he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Now, God is helping us here. He's telling us here that if there was ever any question about the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7 about who that's really about. A lot of people think it's talking about Solomon. No, it's talking about Christ here. The matter is settled here. The Lord is telling us here that he's going to give him the throne of his father, David. He's going to be the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give him the throne of his father, David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, I'm going to skip a few in there, but it says, verse 12, And when thy days be fulfilled, in other words, David's days be fulfilled, Nathan the prophet is talking to him, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. People want to think he's talking about Solomon here, because Solomon's going to literally build the temple, but he's talking about Christ here. Verse 13, he shall build an house for my name, and I will establish his throne, establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 14, I will be his father, and he shall be my son. We can appreciate a literal interpretation of that. Jesus is the son of God. Verse 16, in thine house, that would be David's house, in thy kingdom, David's kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So Jesus is going to build a house. He's the one who's going to build a house, which is inferred here as David's house. David is also a synonym for Christ, depending on the context here. The throne of David is to be given to Jesus Christ forever. And all of this is consistent with what we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. This is very much the annunciation of the Lord here. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, it says, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Is that not exactly, literally, what happened to the angels when they were watching their flock by night? It said that the glory of the Lord shone round about them. The glory of the, the angel of the Lord appeared unto them, and without a doubt, the glory, it says the glory was there, so it shone, shone quite brightly. And then an angelic host joined them, or joined the angel, rather, and I have no doubt that it got even brighter. That is exactly what happened with respect to the Annunciation of Christ. Down in verse 6, it says in Isaiah chapter 9, For unto us a child is born, that's certainly speaking of the birth of Christ, unto us a son is given. God gave his son for our sins. 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder. He's going to rule everything, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God is going to do everything that's required for these things to take place, for those things to be true. He's going to order it and he's going to establish it. And I want us to appreciate in these days and ages when everything seems like it's upside down, that everything is going according to God's plan. He is ordering it and he is establishing it according to justice and judgment. He is sovereign over everything. And so while this speaks of great joy, I think as Christians we can appreciate this dichotomy of emotions that we have within us when we see all this mayhem and we see all of this death and destruction going on in the world. Let me ask you this question. This has to do with the birth of Christ. Why did the wise men stop in Jerusalem? What would have happened if they had bypassed Jerusalem and went straight to Bethlehem? Could not the Lord have led them straight to Bethlehem? Could not the Lord have in some other way than going through Herod and his scribes revealed to him, revealed to them that Bethlehem was the birthplace of Christ. Now we know that they, I should say, we think that they came out of Babylon and they had the book of Numbers there that during the um, um, exile of the Israelites that they had taken scripture with them. So they'd read from the book of Numbers about a star, you know, a scepter rising out of um, uh, Jesse um, and a scepter from between his feet. But nevertheless, God ordained that they would go through Jerusalem. And what was the result of that? Herod was told the king of the Jews was born. Herod even calls him the Christ. That's the question he puts to the scribes. Where, is, where does it say that Christ would be born? And so as a result of that, the fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 1.15 says, Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. In Matthew chapter 2, 18, the Lord tells us the literal fulfillment took place when Herod ordered the death of all of the children, age two and younger, not only in Bethlehem, but the coast round about. In Matthew, it says, in Ramah, there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping with great mourning, Rachel, weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they were not. God is building his house, and that was part of the process. And it's a grievous part of the process, uh, part of the process. And we see that in this world today. And so our hearts are troubled. On one hand, we have great joy in the things that we see in terms of God building up his house. But we also have sorrow in things like this when we see the uh, brutality of man upon men take place um, in this world. But never for a moment think that God is not ordering it and that he's not establishing his throne and his kingdom forever. He is building his house. And when he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane and said, if it be possible to remove this cup from me, the answer was no. It is not possible. There is no other way. This is the way God has ordained that the world should go. Now, in verse 33 of Luke chapter 1, speaking of Christ Jesus, it says, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, 
and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Similar language to that which we just read in Isaiah chapter 9. His kingdom is without end. Second Samuel 7, his kingdom is without end. His kingdom is right now, and it shall go um, into eternity. But here in uh, Luke, it's talking about the house of Jacob. Second Samuel, it's the house of David. Um, they're, again, they're all, they're all synonyms. We know that of Christ in Hebrews 3, 6, it says that Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? The Christian church is Christ's house that he is building, also called Jacob's house, also called David's house. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, the Lord's speaking here, but if I tarry long, I, Christ, tarry long, that thou, the church, mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the, quote, house of God, which is the church of the living God. So we have house of God, house of Christ, house of Jacob, house of David. It's all one and the same. Now, what does this have to do with the timing of Christ, his birth? Well, let's go back to Genesis chapter 33, and we're going to find a very interesting couple of three verses there. And so we find the prophecy, we find Scripture speaking about Christ did um, all over the Scripture. And so to us who joy in Christ, we enjoy in seeing him everywhere. The scripture sets him forth before us. And so when he was manifest in the flesh, that ought not to have been a surprise to a Christian if God had been opening the scripture to them. In Genesis chapter 33, in verse 17, it speaks about Jacob. Verse 17, it says, And Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built him an house and made booze for his cattle. So here we have Jacob here. He's a type of Christ. And the word succoth, the etymology and root of that word is the word booths. So he journeyed to like a booth, and he built him a house there. Well, this parallels what Christ is doing. Christ journeyed from a long way off. He comes down, and where does he in? Where does he first manifest himself? In a booth. And he's going to build him a house, and he's going to build him a house by going through the cross, the process of manifesting himself in the flesh, and going to the cross is the process by which he builds himself a house. And it says there, he made booze for his cattle. Now, booze is what? A temporary dwelling structure. And I'm here to share with you that the body that I live in is a temporary structure. I'm going to get a better one. I'm going to get a glorified body when the Lord comes or when I'm resurrected from the grave. So I'm in a booth right now. So he's built booze for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth, which means booth. Now, between verse 17 and verse 18, Jacob crosses the Jordan River. Now, we've talked about what the Jordan River typifies. It can typify regeneration. It can also typify going through the grave and going to glory. In the context here, it's typifying going to glory. Verse 18, and Jacob came in peace to Shechem, the word is to Shalem. The word Shalem there in the Hebrew means peace, to the city of Shechem which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram and pitched his tent before him. Padan Aram means the ransom is high. The ransom is high. So I hope you can appreciate here that the Lord came down and built a house for his people, crossed over the Jordan, took them to glory in peace, and the ransom was high. This takes us back to the... Um, um, census that was taken by Caesar Augustus in this context, the type of God, finding out what it would cost for the people to come into the house of God. Verse 19, and he bought a parcel 
of a field where he had spread his tent in the land of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. That is the same place that Joseph's bones were removed to, typifying the resurrection of all of the saints from the house of bondage. In verse 20, and he erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. In other words, God, the God of Israel. And so it is in a nutshell, in just these few verses here, we can learn or we um, can appreciate what Christ has done. He has come from a long place away. He was manifested manifest in flesh, which in the context of Scripture can be a booth. It's a temporary dwelling structure. So too it is with us. He built a house. He gathered us unto himself. He brought us in peace to God Almighty, taking us through the grave um, to get there. And so we have in the timing of the Lord's birth that it was coincidental with the um, Feast of Ingathering or the Feast of, of Booze, we can appreciate a verse like that in Genesis chapter 33 to help us tie Scripture together in terms of what God has done in building himself a house and the things that were entailed in that. Now, Having read all this and had all of this set before us, again, we go to Luke chapter 2 to figure out, well, what do you do with this interesting information? What do you do with it? Well, you do what the shepherds did. And we rejoice in it, certainly. And in verse 17 and 19 of Luke chapter 2, it says, And when they had seen it, meaning Christ, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning the child. And that's what we do. We go out in the world and we make abroad the known. We preach the gospel and we always uh, speak about what Christ did who he is, and what he did, and who he did it for. Everything that he accomplished, that's what we speak about. And all that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. And we would pray that people would not only wonder at those things that we share with them, but they would do what Mary did. She kept these things in her heart, and she pondered them in her heart. And so we would pray that all those with whom we share the Christmas narrative with, all those with whom we share, uh, the gift of Christ with, that they would keep the truths in their hearts and ponder those things which we have shared with them. Ponder the thing that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world, for there is none other man under heaven whereby we must be saved than Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.